We were made for a relationship, and that's pretty clear. If you just reflect on that just a bit, it's pretty clear. You don't have to reflect on this, though, at all, just to simply say, uh, one, go one step further, and that is to say that it's not just that we were made for relationships, but our relationships need help. Uh, this is something that we were made for in the most profound way, but we struggle with it in, in, in every way. Some of you have heard me say from time to time that we are very much like porcupines in a thunderstorm, huddling up real tight and then needling each other all the, all the while. Uh, we were made for a relationship, and yet it seems that we struggle so much. We need Our relationships need help. We need help. Conflict seems so inevitable. It's, it's all that we know when it comes to our relationships with each other. It's, it's all that we have known. It's all that we see everywhere we look all, all the time. I mean, I, I find in my own personal life at times, I want to cry out with, like, with Rodney King in the 1992 L.A. riots. Can't we all get along? Look that up if you don't remember is conflict then just inevitable? Pushing further, are our relationships just doomed? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that the fall is real, and its effects are felt, and so it's not a matter of if but when we're going to bump up and scrape up against each other. But it's not that we're without hope. Not at all. Not at all. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn now with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this is the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, roughly around 60 AD. He's writing from uh, imprisonment in, in Rome, uh, waiting trial. If you're trying to find that, this is in the midst of the, the letters as we have uh, preserved for us in the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts. You have Romans and the Corinthian letters and then Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. Philippians, we have finished uh, chapter 1. We are now moving into chapter, into chapter 2. My friends, our relationships need help. And we have hope, but what is it? Let's read now from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's a comical image, of course, the porcupines and the storm thing. It's really a little silly, I guess, but we know what that's like, feeling on the one hand, every one of us, a pull towards one another, a longing to connect, a longing to, to know and be known, but at the same time we don't want to know and we don't want to be known. And so we're just feeling all the time this pushing and pulling and um, 
made for this very thing that we struggle so much with. And Paul, your servant, the apostle, your anointed emissary, messenger, is, uh, is speaking. But really we know it's your Holy Spirit speaking through him, not just to a church years ago and a place far away, but, but to us here this morning. And so we ask that you would dig ears with which we could hear and help us really hear what's being said here. Amen. Well, let me jump right in. Uh, what's Paul doing here? What is he doing? Let's be clear. He is not questioning. He is not doubting the sincerity of the faith of his readers. If you remember what we've seen already in our study in the course of just already in Philippians 1, verses uh, 3 through 11, he was very clear and sincere in his talking about how he was so thankful, how joyful, how full of praise for God for what he, the work that he had begun in their lives. He'd spoken of the partnership that he shared with them in the gospel, in Christ. He loves these people. He knows that Jesus has begun something, and it's a powerful thing, a beautiful thing. He's not doubting or questioning the sincerity of their faith, but rather here in the beginning of chapter 2, he is longing to stir them up. He is longing to provoke their faith, to see them grow in this faith that is in fact real. In essence saying, my friends, you have experienced something already of the, the saving work of the triune God. Live that out. You've experienced something of it already. Live it out. You, you have come to know something of his um, eternal affection and the, the deepest sympathy from God himself. Think on that. You're beneficiaries of, of his, as he says there in the latter part of verse 1, you're beneficiaries of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, his affection, his sympathy. You are beneficiaries, recipients of that. Think on that. Breathe. That end. Let it soak down into your very bones. Let it change you. Let it work itself out. And may it begin in your relationships with one another. Put another way, he, he says also in, in verse 2 that there is something, he, he's already spoken of how these people bring him joy in chapter 1. But now here in the beginning of chapter 2, he is alluding to the fact that if his, his, the cup of his joy would run over. It would overflow. His joy, there's something that would complete it. That would cause it just to, to flourish and overflow. What would that be? He tells us that they would live together in unity. That they would live together in unity. And in fact, if you remember... Uh, Last week, I guess it was, that we were talking of, about this. I mean, he, he, he's already alluded to this. This is not the first time he's spoken of the need for this. We talked about this this last week, the need to, to stand together, to stand together as, as one. And the, the mark of being citizens of the kingdom of God was is unity and courage. So now Paul is returning to that. And again, as I said last week, if you've read ahead in chapter 2, you know he's really going to go hard here in chapter 2 on that, on that theme, which tells us then that unity, the community, 
Love amidst the brothers and sisters, the family of God amidst the, in the kingdom of God, and as a mark of the kingdom of God, it is not something that is just sort of an appendix. It is not optional. It is essential. It is essential to what it means to live the Christian life. Or if I can put it this way, the triune God, what Paul is saying here is that the triune God is carrying out his mighty work of salvation. We are then to live that out by living as one. The triune God is carrying out his mighty work of salvation. We are to live that out by living as one. Now, there are three things that Paul speaks to here in our text, and I want to move there with you now over the next few minutes. It's there in your outline. These three things. One, he gives us a proper understanding of unity, what that is, and we do need to have that set straight. Uh, he also then moves from there to speak of the you know, something that's absolutely necessary and vital for that unity to, to be in place and to flourish, and that is humility. And then stemming from there, flowing from there, what it looks like, what practically on the ground it looks like, how you can identify a person or a group of people that are in fact one and are in fact humble, and that is living lives of service one to another, laying themselves out, laying ourselves out for one another. Well, let's look at this, these things in turn if we can. This one, two, three, understanding of unity and necessity of humility and living all this out in service. Okay, verses one and two. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What, okay, an understanding of unity. What is it? Please understand, Paul is not talking, he's talking about unity here, not uniformity. And those are two very different things. Two very different things. Uniformity is a bland sameness. Just, there's no flavor, there's no texture, there's no melody. It's just bleh. Um, it's gray. It's agreement without differences, without distinctions, and undifferentiated sameness. And we know just looking at creation and all of the diversity, look around you in this room, my friends. Is God interested in uniformity? Look, go out into that field. Open your eyes. See the wonder of his work. See, he is not interested in uniformity. He is not interested in undifferentiated, boring, bland sameness. Think in terms of his essence. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, etern from all eternity, this diversity within one Godhead. The Trinity, his nature tells us he is not interested in uniformity, but unity. And it's interesting, this is, I think this is worth pointing out because in our world today, we get really nervous and people all around us think that unity has to equal uniformity. We get, if, if we see differences of opinion on, and we, on in particular big issues, we get nervous, we get scared, our voices raise, our, the sweat begins to foam on our upper lips. We get strident and angry and we will shout each other down, right and left. 
We don't know what to do with this concept. We get very nervous. It's unheard of. It's unknown. It's distrusted. We've got to hear this. God does not have in mind for us uniformity, but union, but oneness. And as Paul speaks of here, a oneness of mind, oneness in, in conviction as we grow together in our understanding of the truth of His Word. You know, rightly understood doctrine, doctrine should not divide. Doctrine should promote unity and preserve unity as we grow in it together in the truth and the gospel. So one in conviction, one in mind. He, he speaks to that. And, but also, as you look in, what's, okay, the, it's bracketed in that way in verse 2, but also having the same love, being in full accord. So one in conviction, one in affection, one in mind, one in heart. See, as we grow in this gospel, in the good news of Jesus, and his love for us, and the finished work of, of his for us on the cross... It enables us, it gives us a stability that allows us to work through the differences with patience and kindness and mercy. And this is what Jesus is looking for, what he is working in us, this not uniformity but, but unity. Now this is where you're wondering why the picture behind it. Let me tell you why. Um, trying to make a, a, paint the difference for you, if I, if I may. Apollo 8. Apollo 8 was the, the second um, manned mission in the NASA's Apollo space program as we were moving closer and closer to the moon back in the 60s. It was launched on December 16th, excuse yeah, December 16th, 1968. It was the, and I get this, the number of firsts with this, what these, these three guys in that spacecraft did. They were... The, this is the first manned spacecraft to leave Earth's orbit. Ever. Okay? First manned spacecraft to ever leave Earth's orbit, then go to the moon, orbit that, so another planetary body, and then return. Now, it's known for a couple of things. The first being on their fourth of something like 20 orbits, uh, on December 24th, 1968, Christmas Eve, they were greeted by that picture, an earthrise. No human eyes had ever seen anything like that. From their vantage point, that blue and green sphere set up against the, the contrast of the expanse, the vacuum of space, and the contrast of that life and all around them, this emptiness, this coldness, this barrenness. That was the first thing. The second thing, and some of you may be familiar with this, is the Christmas Eve broadcast of 1968. As those three astronauts read back, and it was this, by the way, at this time was the most watched TV broadcast in television history. And those three astronauts took turns reading from Genesis 1. And then they, they, they each were given the opportunity to describe what it was that they were seeing. And Frank Borman, the commander of the mission, described the moon this way. A vast, lonely, forbidding expanse of nothing. That's uniformity. The moon is an image of uniformity. 
that sphere rising is unity, life, vibrancy, vitality, differences and distinctions harnessed. That's what God means for us. And that's Christ's vision for us. And it's the world's need from us that it would see something in some grouping of people that is so strikingly different. We have this different message by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that should make us one if we believe it, if we will but take it to heart. In the, the unity of conviction, the unity of affection. And, and I hope it stirs something within you. It should. It's a good stirring. It's, it's a good thing to be stirred by this, this vision. Let it stir. Pray for it. Labor for it. Give yourself for it. The triune God is carrying out His work of salvation. We're to live that out by living as one. And that's the first point. Now the second point, following quickly on the heels of that is, but how? What has to be in place for that to, to, for that to be a reality, for that to flourish? And Paul gives us that answer with talking to us, speaking to us of the necessity of humility. So let me go on now to verse 3. With all that he said so far in mind, the essential uh, the essentialness of, of humility, uh, excuse me, of unity, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, for the, the reader and the, the hearer uh, of, of this, and this is the problem when you chop up a study like this in the one week after another week after another week, but if, you, if we just sat and you heard all of chapter 1 read, and then we got to this point, you would have heard something repeated. Go back a few weeks on our study. When Paul was talking about the divisiveness in the church taking place there in the church in Rome where he was in prison, the divisiveness, there was, there was rivalry. Verse 17, that's the same word. The former proclaimed, one group of people, proclaimed Christ out of rivalry. Same word in chapter 2, verse 3. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my prison. Now you can could, you could imagine how the, his readers in Philippi, in Philippi are thinking, whoa, those, those stupid Christians in Rome. I mean, how could they think for a minute that that would be in any way possible or, or even permissible? Or in, now, Well, wait a minute. What? What? Why is he talking to us now? The reason he's talking to us now is because it is a clear and present danger wherever we are. Not just Rome, but here in Philippi. Here in Philippi. Something for which, against which we have to be on our guard anywhere where there's human hearts, where there's the potentiality of the soil or the weeds of the selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's, it's in here. It's in here. It's in me. It's in you. It's in all of us. The potential for that, the danger for that. So there, the, the need, how do you offset that? With humility, what Paul writes of here in this verse. Humility, this thing was so despised in Roman society, it was regarded, by the way, as a vice, not a virtue in Roman culture. Humility, the thing that was much more appropriate for a servant, a slave, than a noble citizen. 
But you see, that's exactly what Paul is calling for here. You see, again, this is the radical nature of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. To be a slave. To be a slave. Paul is speaking here of unity, of a, of a low, yes, a lowliness of mind in how we assess ourselves before God and one another. A lowliness of mind and a sanity of spirit. Where not so much we are, are, are thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Let me, let me uh, read to you this, this quote here in your quotes and notes from C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. I mean, it, it illustrates how, how vital unity is and how essential humility is in that. We have to be clear on this, and if you know anything about the Screwtape Letters, you know that Lewis is writing from the vantage point. It's a fictional work, sort of. Writing from the vantage point of this demon, a senior tempter, who's writing to uh, Wormwood, his under study, local, I don't know. Anyway, everything is topsy-turvy in the book. And, and this is how, these letters, I think this is from letter 15, this, this is how to trip up your Christian, your patient. And this is what he said, you must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents I gather he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes. But that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue by this method. Thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. That is not humility. And you see, that's what we're being prodded to believe. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Now what Paul is doing here in, in talking of bringing humility into this discussion regarding Unity is he's meddling, as Paul is prone to do. He's meddling. He's pressing in on our motives, forcing us, I would say, to ask some questions like this. Why do I do the things that I do? And by that, I'm not talking about the bad things that I do, which are plenty. But why, not, not you know, why do I keep, fall back into doing this and that and the thing I thought I was over and, and beyond? No, not the bad. Why do I do the good things I do? Why do I do the good things that I do? Is it, is it to be noticed? Is it to be recognized? Is it to be appreciated? Is it for the applause? Now think with me, how do you know when you don't get the recognition, when you don't get the applause, and when you don't get the notice, and someone else might even do, maybe even does, then you know why you did it. So why do I do the thing? Why do you do the things that you do? Who is this about? Your selfless acts of service. This is hard, but we've got to pro be willing to be probed here and to probe here ourselves. The triune God is carrying out his work of salvation. And he's calling us to live this out by living as one, and that demands humility. But what does it look like? How is it expressed? Well, Paul doesn't, you know, he doesn't give us room to guess. 
He presses us, he messes with us, and then he gives us practicalities. How is this fleshed out? So I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Now do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now note what this looks like. It is not, we are not called to be ascetics. Now by that I mean we are not called to just ignore our interests, to pretend that they're not there. That's not what he says, right? He doesn't say pretend you have no concerns, no issues, no desires, no interests, but he says rather submit them. Submit your interests under the interests and needs of others. You don't need to ignore yours, but you need to put them under, acknowledge them, but you need to subordinate them to the needs and the desires and interests of others. And where does that begin? Well, it doesn't, again, Paul, meddling as he does, does not allow for any generalities. He does not allow for this to be some theoretical academic exercise, just some head game. How does he word this? He gets very nasty and specific. Each of you. Each of you. So what that means is, Richard, put your name here. Kelsey, put your name here. Donna, put your name there. Kobe, put your name there. <laughs> we aren't given an out. He's dealing with specifics, with particulars. This unity is vital. It is undergirded by humility. It expresses itself in service in very practical, everyday ways. Now, let me give you just one example. For time's sake, I'm just going to give you one. And that is this, let others speak. How can you serve a person? How can you serve another? Let shut up, if I may just be so bold, and let others speak. Think of how that's a service. Stop being so busy. Set something down. Give someone a chance to speak, to unburden themselves. Give others a chance to speak. Be willing to be quiet. Do you have to? Do I? Do we have to insert our ideas into every conversation? Do we? It would seem the way we talk, that's how we feel, but do we? Do we have to? Is it possible that maybe it might be appropriate at times to be quiet, to let the other person speak in that Bible study, in that community group, in that dinnertime conversation, in that car ride? in that interaction at the water cooler, whatever it is, can we not serve one another by giving each other a chance to speak and express, to be heard, to be loved in that, in that, in that way? The triune God is carrying out his work of salvation. He calls us then to live that out by living as one. That means unity that is grounded in humility and is expressed in service. Let me end with this. I know many of us are familiar with the expression to play the second fiddle. I don't have any of those up here, but anyway. Um, to play the second fiddle. Now by that, usually what we mean by that is, is to assume a less important, yeah, less important role. Which nobody wants. Nobody wants to be this. I mean, you know, I mean, vice presidents want to be president. 
The backup quarterback wants to start. The understudy wants to be the star. In the world of music, you have the first and second chair, right? The first chair is the person deemed by the, I guess, the conductor to, to be the one who is the best, the most skilled, so they get first chair. And the backup is who? The second chair. So you know which position, what role is the hardest really to fill in an orchestra? It's not the first. It's the second chair. But you've got to have someone willing to fill the second chair for there to be an orchestra. For there to be that rich texture of music that otherwise would not be there. If we were just competing with one another or the second chair just was, I'm not playing. Okay, how do you do this? this okay, Unity, humility, service. Let me take you back to the first thing we saw. How is this possible? This radical thing on which everything hinges. How is this possible? Okay, Paul tells us. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, which likely is a reference to the Father's love, by the way, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Look, if these things are true, or rather, given that these things are true, my friends, that you are beneficiaries of the Father's encourage—excuse me, the, the Son's encouragement, the Father's comfort, and the Spirit's partnership. Konania is what that word means. Given, and all that's, that's that's flowing from the triune God's heart of affection and sympathy for you. You ask, how then can I live this way? How then can I, can I humble myself? How then can I give myself over in service? Come back to that. Remember what you have. Remember how blessed you are, how rich you are. The treasure trove, the inheritance, what you have now. That encouragement, that comfort, that partnership, that affection and sympathy is yours now. You see, that's not just the why, that's not just the purpose, which of course it is as to why we're to live as one, but it's what fuels it. It's what empowers it. It's what makes it possible. The grace and mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and in a profound way made us for one another too. You've made us to, with a desire to connect, to know, and be known, but we struggle, we fall short. Even as we said earlier, we want to know, but don't. We want to be known, but don't. We know this experience, we feel this experience, but you, and you mean so much more for us. And it begins here with us, with the church. You intend for us to be a living example of your intent. You want us, you intend for us to be a, a, the instruments of the gospel in this world by the power of the gospel in this world, evidence of the resurrection power. We ask that you would make it so with us. Make us what we are, one. Make us what we should be, humble. And drive us to do what we should do, and that is to serve. In your name we pray. Amen.